Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Innovators Who Immigrate. Talent is spread equally over the planet, but opportunity is not. Today I want to look at some papers that try to quantify the cost to science and innovation from barriers to immigration. Specifically, let's look at a set of papers on what happens to individuals with the potential to innovate when they immigrate versus when they don't. All of these papers confront the same fundamental challenge. Successfully immigrating is usually a matter of choice, selection, but also luck. For the purposes of investigating the impact of immigration on innovation, that means we can't simply compare immigrants to non-immigrants. For example, immigrants usually choose to migrate, and if they do so because they believe that they'll be more successful abroad, well, that signals something about their underlying level of ambition or maybe risk tolerance. And that, in turn, might mean that these kind of people are more likely to be innovative scientists or inventors, even if they had just stayed home. And compounding this problem, countries impose all sorts of rules about who's allowed to migrate, and many of those rules make it easier to migrate if you can demonstrate some kind of aptitude or talent, which means successful immigrants are often drawn from a pool of people more likely to have the talent to succeed in science and invention, even if they had never immigrated themselves. So these are challenges, but at the same time, there's also a degree of sort of capricious luck about immigration and, you know, capricious luck in life in general. There are people, maybe many people, who want to immigrate and maybe they have extraordinary talent, but they don't immigrate for all sorts of just random reasons. Compared to otherwise identical people who do migrate, well, maybe they lack information, or maybe they lack financial resources, or maybe they face higher barriers to legal immigration. In fact, in many cases, immigration is literally handed out by lottery. It doesn't get more random than that. And so the papers we'll look at employ various strategies to try and find comparable groups of people who immigrate and people who don't. And then they're going to try to infer the impact of immigration and place on innovation, kind of separating it out from the role of choosing to be a migrant versus not and sort of this selection on talent uh, being a precursor to being able to immigrate. So one way to deal with the selection effect is to try and measure the talent of a sample of both immigrants and non-immigrants and then compare migrant and non-migrants who appear to have similar underlying talent. Agrawal and Gale 2020 and Agrawal et al. 2023 does this with the International Mathematical Olympiads. The International Mathematical Olympiads is a prominent math competition for high school students from around the world, and it's been held annually for decades. Up to six representatives from each country who's participating are selected via regional and national competitions. And then these participants travel to a common city somewhere in the world, and they try to solve six different, presumably very hard, math problems. Because it's an Olympiad, winners take home gold, silver, and bronze medals, and Agrawal and co-authors know the scores of all the competitors between 1981 to the year 2000, and then they look to see what happens to these competitors later in life. In Agrawal and Gale 2020, they show that scores on these math competitions strongly predicts later success as a mathematician. That, in turn, is kind of surprising given the talents for doing creative mathematical research may, in principle, differ substantially from the skills and talents needed to perform well in a sort of fixed competition setting. But anyway, their data set also establishes something else. Students from low-income countries are less likely to obtain PhDs in math 
than students with the same scores who come from high-income countries. In AgriWall et al. 2023, they used this data set to look at the different fates of those who immigrate from their home country and those who do not. On average, a migrant is about twice as likely to be employed in academia as a mathematician as someone from the same country who got the same math score but didn't migrate themselves. Now, of course, while math scores help address the problem of selection, this doesn't really get at the problem of choice. Perhaps people who really want to be mathematicians are just disproportionately likely to migrate since the highest ranked mathematics departments tend to be abroad, and it's this difference in career intentions that explains the difference in career outcomes between migrants and non-migrants. Agrawal et al. 2023 provides some additional evidence that this is not purely an outcome of career choice, though. For one, looking only at migrant and non-migrant students who both become math academics, either in their home country or abroad, they find the ones who immigrate go on to garner about 85% more citations to their publications than their domestic peers. And remember, that's with the same score in math competitions. We might think citations aren't a great measure of math skill, and I have a, a previous post about that, but the same paper shows migrant ac academics are about 70% more likely to become speakers at the International Congress of Mathematicians, too. And that's a non-citation-based measure of sort of community recognition for your talents. So among people who ended up becoming academic mathematicians, either at home or abroad, the ones who migrated went on to have more distinguished careers as compared to their peers who did equally well in high school on math. But, you know, this is still uh, fairly indirect evidence. Fortunately, Agrawal and co-authors also just asked Olympiad medalists directly about their preferences in a survey. From respondents in low- and middle-income countries, 66% said they would have liked to do their undergraduate degree in the USA if they could have studied anywhere they wanted. But only 25% actually did. That's 66% wanted to, 25% did. Just 11% said their first choice was to study in their home country, but in fact, 51% did study in their home country. So, you know, why didn't they study abroad if that's what they wanted to do? Well, a bunch of other survey evidence suggests the problem was just money. For 56% of the low- and middle-income respondents, they said the availability of financial assistance was very or extremely important. And students from low- and middle-income countries were also much more likely to choose a hypothetical, fully-funded offer of admission at a lower-ranked school than their peers in high-income countries, which is another piece of evidence that you know, for these guys, funding constraints really mattered. Another paper, Gibson and McKenzie 2014, provides some complementary evidence outside of mathematics. As part of a larger project on migration and brain drain, they've identified 851, we'll call them promising young New Zealanders, who graduated high school between 1976 and 2004. Now, these students either represented New Zealand on this famous International Mathematical Olympiad team, but they might have also been International Chemistry Olympiad members. Uh, maybe they were top in exams, or maybe they earned the New Zealand equivalent of sort of the valedictorian. Anyway, like Agrawal and co-authors, they can see what happens to New Zealanders who migrate versus those who remain. And they find researchers who moved abroad, well, they publish more than those who don't. Now, as with the previous paper, this poses some other potential problems. Even though we know all of these students who stayed or left were talented, those who migrate might have had different unobserved levels of skill or ambition or risk tolerance or something. 
So one way they attempt to deal with this is to focus their attention on the subset of researchers who actually do migrate away from New Zealand, and then looking to see what happens to their research output when they move back. The idea here is those who left were at least initially, you know, at the point of leaving, displaying similar levels of skill, ambition, risk tolerance, and all that other stuff. And you might ask, well, why did they return though? And we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Anyway, for each New Zealand migrant researcher who returned to New Zealand, Gibson and Mackenzie try to find another New Zealander who stayed abroad, but is similar in their age, their gender, what they studied in high school, their highest degree, and so forth. And they then look to see what happens to the number of citations to both of these people's academic work. And while both groups had basically the same number of citations prior to return migration, after one of the two people returned to New Zealand, the citations to their work declined substantially relative to the citations of their paired migrant who remained abroad. Now again, we see that being abroad was good for research productivity. But again, perhaps we're concerned that there's an important difference that's unstated and unobserved between New Zealanders who stayed abroad and those who returned home. Maybe the ones who came back came back because they just couldn't cut it. But we actually don't see much evidence of that. Uh, In a figure that you can't see that plots the citations of both groups over time, we see that while the figure matches each returnee to someone who stayed abroad based on a number of characteristics, the characteristics that were not matched on was how many citations their work was getting prior to departure. And yet, prior to departure, their citations were on a very similar trajectory. So there was no obvious reason that one group was not doing well academically and had to go back home. And like Agrawal and co-authors, Gibson and McKenzie just survey their subjects to see why they moved back, and most of the answers were not related to individual research productivity. They had to do with stuff like concerns about aging parents, child raising, and the location of extended family. Another line of evidence comes from Khan and McGarvey 2016, which focuses on PhD students who come to America from abroad. The paper's big idea is to compare students who come on the prestigious Fulbright program to similar peers who were not Fulbright fellows. The students and their matches are really similar in this case. They graduated from the same PhD program. They usually came from a similar country, and they were either studying under the exact same advisor and then graduating within three years of each other, or they merely studied in the same program, but they graduated in the exact same year. The only difference was that the Fulbright students have a requirement to leave the USA for two years after finishing their studies, whereas the matched students faced no such restrictions on their ability to stay in the United States. Khan and McGarvey first show that these migration restrictions matter whereas 66% of foreign students doing PhDs in the USA end up remaining, so about two-thirds, only 12% of the Fulbright Fellows do. They then estimate the impact of being abroad on future academic outcomes, but using a statistical model, instrumental variables, that tries to identify the impact of being abroad derived solely from the restrictions imposed on the Fulbright program. And with this approach, they find leaving the USA due to Fulbright requirements is associated with about 65% fewer publications and fewer citations received, and nearly 80% fewer publications in high-impact journals. Another paper, Shi, Liu, and Wang, 2023, takes a similar approach as the above to evaluate the impact of China's Young Thousand Talents program. 
This is an ongoing effort to increase China's domestic scientific capacity by attracting talented scientists to move to China with salary subsidies and guaranteed research funding. The program isn't restricted to Chinese citizens, but in practice, that's mostly the population who chooses to take up the offer. So Shi, Liu, and Wang focus on 339 Chinese scientists who obtained PhDs abroad and then moved back to China as part of the program. Similar to Khan and McGarvey, they compared this population to a set of Chinese scientists who went to the same overseas university in the same field and graduated within three years of the returnee, but they chose to stay abroad. They also try to identify scientists who have similar publication and citation trajectories prior to the date of the return to China. And in a figure you can't see, we plot the publication trajectory of returnees relative to the ones who stayed abroad. And after a few years of adjustment, uh, where their publication record is a little bit depressed but not statistically different from their peers who stayed in America or whatever country they were in, those who returned to China publish more than their peers who stayed abroad, with this increase concentrated in last authored publications, which is a signal that uh, they're running their own lab. So to sum up, in the proceeding, moving abroad is associated with more productivity for mathematicians, returning home is associated with lower productivity among New Zealand migrant researchers and Fulbright scholars, but at the same time, returning home is associated with higher productivity among Chinese scientists. So what's going on here? There's a pretty simple story that runs through all these studies. It's not migrating that's good for scientists. It's about migrating to a place that's good for science. That might mean a place with the resources to do science, or it might mean being in a place with lots of good scientists to collaborate with. Most of the time, it means both, since good scientists tend to go where they have the resources to do good science. Most people intuitively know this, and hence they don't move, because you know moving is a pain, unless they think it'll be good for their career. And hence the reason we see such a big impact on moving is because people are disproportionately likely to move to places good for science. For example, in Agrawal et al. 2023, which looked at the effect of moving on the careers of mathematicians, the authors also tried to break down the impact of moving by destination. The USA houses more top math universities by you know, various rankings than any other country and tends to compensate academics well by international standards. So if the moving effect is mostly about moving to places with more support for science, well, we might expect to see a bigger impact among mathematicians who travel to the United States. And indeed, Agrawal and co-authors find that moving specifically to the USA is associated with receiving four times as many citations as not moving, whereas moving to other countries is associated with only twice as many citations. It's not bad, but not as good as the United States. Migrants to the USA also end up six times as likely to become invited speakers at the International Congress of Mathematicians, again compared to twice as likely for migrants to other countries. And recall, this is when we're comparing two people from the same country who received the same score in high school on international mathematical competitions. Kahn and McGarvey's work on Fulbright scholars also tells a similar story. In their case, they focus on the level of GDP per capita in the country that Fulbright Fellows return to. And they find the penalty associated with return migration out of the United States becomes increasingly severe as students return to countries with progressively lower GDP per capita. A student returning to a country with GDP per capita at the 90th percentile, i.e. only 10% of students in their sample come from countries that are richer, 
A student returning to one of these richer countries receives actually 6% more citations by returning than those who remain in the United States. But the effect is not really big. It's not statistically distinguishable from zero. But those whose GDP per capita puts them at the 50th percentile among these students receives 45% fewer citations than the remaining scholars. And those who return to countries at the 25th percentile receive 55% fewer citations than remaining scholars. GDP per capita in China is not in the top 10%, so we might expect a penalty for scientists who move back to China. But remember, the Chinese Young Thousand Talents program is explicitly about providing resources to scientists to do science. Indeed, in another analysis, Shi, Liu, and Wang try to take into account the extra funding Chinese returnees in their sample get by gathering data on grants and the size of the teams that these returnees co-author with. And once you take into account team size and grants, the impact of returning is a lot more muted. Much of the advantage of returning to China is about getting access to funding and a peer network that Chinese PhD students abroad struggle to get. Shi, Liu, and Wang also find the biggest impact of the program among returnees for whom the funds from the Young Thousands Talent Program probably really mattered. Those in fields that most require access to funding, such as chemistry and the life sciences, and those who were probably struggling more to get funds abroad because maybe they weren't had not secured faculty positions or they weren't among the top 10% most productive in their cohort. In fact, among scientists less likely to need funding, so maybe those in mathematics or physics or those who had faculty positions prior to their return and those who were in the top 10% most productive prior to their return, for them, the impact of returning to China was actually negative for their productivity, although the effects were too small to be statistically distinguishable from zero. Even Gibson and McKenzie's study on migrant researchers who return to New Zealand suggests lower productivity upon return is at least partially driven by resources to do science. In their survey of these scientists, Gibson and McKenzie asked them, what policies would you personally recommend to government officials and universities trying to entice researchers to return? And the survey responses discussed things like low salaries and high teaching loads, poorly funded scientific laboratories, and the low success rate of grant funding requests. Lastly, what about inventors rather than scientists? Prado 2022 looks at patent holders in the USA and European Union. Among the 1.2 million people who file more than one patent with the European Patent Office between 1978 and 2016, she identifies about 1,500 who do so from the USA in some cases and the EU in others, which forms her set of migrating inventors. For each of these migrating inventors, she finds another inventor from the same country with a similar patenting career up to the year the migrant starts patenting in the other region. And this is meant to be her set of comparable inventors. If we think of patenting history, can actually accurately capture stuff like talent, ambition, and all those other potential differences we're worried about. She then looks to see if the patenting trajectory of these groups diverges in the years after Half of them migrate and the other stay this stay behind. And as we can see in a figure, which you can't actually see, uh, they do. In general, inventors who move take out about 40% more patents per year after they move, as compared to inventors from the same country with a similar patent career up until the year the immigrant moved. 
Now note, these effects stem entirely from migration between comparatively rich countries, the EU and the USA. In fact, about 65% of these migrants moved from the EU to the USA, and about 35% went in the other direction. So this is not really a story about people migrating from a place where maybe they don't have the resources to invent to a place where they do, like I suggested the other papers were. But Prado argues this is a story instead about how migration expands your inventor network. So when you move abroad, you meet a bunch of new people. And it also allows you to work in a place that's sort of best suited for your particular technology field. Um, you might be a specialist in, I don't know, glass blowing. And if you can move to a country where there's a big glass blowing industry, that's good for your patenting. So in one way, the results of these papers are just not very surprising. Moving to places with more resources and maybe better peers to do science raises your output of science and invention. But what is perhaps more surprising is how large the implied size of moving is. As one point of comparison, several of these papers report an estimate of citations received to academic work. Agrawal and co-authors find moving to the USA raises citations to math publications fourfold, or 2.5-fold if you restrict your attention to people who become math academics either at home or abroad still more than twice. Gibson and McKenzie find similar results by comparing New, Ze New Zealander migrants who return or stay abroad. The ones who stay abroad get up to four times as many citations as those who return. Kahn and McGarvey find PhD students who stay in the USA get four to six times as many citations to their work as their peers in the same program who end up moving back to a country with GDP per capita outside the top 25%. So that's a pretty consistently large effect. And we get similar kinds of results when we look at other proxies for scientific achievement, whether it's counting publications, patents, or you know, becoming an invited speaker at the International Congress of Mathematicians. Moreover, Agrawal's survey results suggest that at least in math, and it's hard to believe it's only in math, there's a large population of talented students who want to study abroad but can't. And yet, it's a bit hard to see how this sort of cashes out in terms of its ultimate impact. While faster progress in science would probably lead to faster progress in technology, and in the newsletter there's a bunch of links, it's tough to say much about how much faster things could be using this data. But one estimate of the potential impact comes from Prado 2022, who builds a model of the innovation, immigration, trade economy between the U.S. and the EU. The model takes into account a lot of subtleties, such as the fact that people with more talent for inventing are more likely to move to places where the rewards for invention are higher, and in turn, uh, when they're abroad, benefit from working with more high-skilled inventors and so on. Anyway, her model implies if the USA doubled the H-1B visa cap from 65,000 to 130,000, just those extra 65,000 people would have the effect, well, per year, would have the effect of raising the real GDP growth rate in each region by 9% in the long run. But there's reason to think that's actually an underestimate of the ultimate impact. Prado's model is calibrated on migration between the US and the EU, two regions with the resources to fund invention and science. As we've seen, the impacts of immigration are much likely to be much stronger for other regions. Thank you. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. 
The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.